I want to begin by revisiting a quotation that I left you with last time by Charles Spurgeon. If you remember, as we ended last week, I read this quote. He said, common, too common is the sin of forgetting the Holy Spirit. This is folly and ingratitude. As God, he is good, essentially. He's good benevolently, tenderly bearing with our waywardness, striving with our rebellious wills, quickening us from our death in sin, and then training us. He is good operatively. All his works are good in the most eminent degree. He suggests good thoughts, prompts good actions, reveals good truths, applies good promises, assists in good attainments, and leads to good results. There is no spiritual good in all the world of which he is not the author and sustainer. They who yield to his influence become good. They who obey him and his impulses do good. And they who live under his power receive good. And then he concludes by saying these timeless and profound words. He says, the church will never prosper until it more reverently believes in the Holy Ghost. Reverently believes. Now, in light of the video you just saw, and in light of the words that I just read, I want to pose a very, very personal and extremely serious question this morning. Do you and I reverently believe in the Holy Spirit. Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart to deeply examine your soul? Because that's what it's going to take. We can't always trust our own examination of ourselves. Let me say that again. We can't always trust our own self-examination process. As someone has said, trying to see the truth about myself is like trying to see the inside of my own eyeballs. Think about that. David's honest petition in Psalm 19, verse 12, penetrates through our nearsightedness. In the New Living Translation, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? And then he says, cleanse me from these hidden faults. Hopefully, if you've gotten anything out of the last 15 messages on the Holy Spirit, you know that as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not left on our own in this area. We don't have to self-examine on our own. The Spirit's continually at work inside of us to detect to forgive and to cleanse us from these hidden faults. All we have to do is to listen and to respond, and to respond appropriately. In his recent book, The Me I Want to Be, author and pastor John Ortberg describes a scene which maybe we're all too familiar with, at least spiritually. He says, once in the middle of the night, Nancy, his wife, and I were lying in bed, and there was a tremendously loud beeping sound. Like that. You know what that sound is, right? 
And Nancy gave me an elbow to the ribs and said, what's that sound? I knew that if I acknowledged hearing the sound, it would be my job to go check it out. So I said, what sound? But I had to say it very loudly so that she could hear me over the tremendously loud beeping sound. Oh, that sound, let me go find out. So he says, I went into the hallway, found the problem, and took care of it. When I got back to bed, Nancy asked, what was it? I told her it was the smoke detector. What made it stop? I told her I took the battery out. <laughs> you can't do that, she said. There could be a fire in the house somewhere. Nancy, I explained patiently, we're upstairs. There's no smoke. We can't smell anything. There's no heat coming from any place. I checked. Do you smell any smoke? I don't smell any smoke. It was clearly a battery problem. Trust me, I took care of it. So we went back to sleep. Next morning, I had an early breakfast meeting, so while everyone else in the family was still sleeping, I went downstairs to leave the house. There were some odd malfunctions. The hall lights downstairs didn't work. The garage door wouldn't open automatically. That was strange but I didn't think much more about it. 40 minutes into breakfast, the server asked me if I was John Ortberg. Your wife called, she said. She asked you to come home. She said the house is on fire. I went home. Fire trucks were parked all over the cul-de-sac. I watched the outside of our White House turning brown. Great clouds of smoke escaping into the neighborhood. It turns out, that a few delinquent birds built their nest inside the chimney casing. It eventually started smoldering and set off that loud beeping sound. Because we didn't do anything, and when I say we, it is my way of saying that mistakes were made, but not by me. <laughs> a fire started behind the wall and did unbelievable damage. All from a little bird's nest, a stupid little bird's nest. What kind of an idiot would take the batteries out of a smoke detector so he could sleep better during a fire? <laughs> that would be me. The smoke detector wasn't my enemy, he said. The fire was my enemy. The smoke detector was simply trying to help me. Friends, let me say this this morning. We have a spiritual smoke detector installed in our souls. It's the Holy Spirit of God. His business is to beep. Our business is to listen and to respond. And it's time we did. Last time we were together, I began with a very important premise based on God's promise. I began with the first point of last week's message. It said that his faithfulness endures so we don't have to fear. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, baptized into his body by his spirit, you will never, ever, I repeat, never be abandoned by him. Amen? Amen. Jesus said he will be with you forever. The presence of the spirit as we talked about last week, is permanent and universal among true believers. We're blood-bought, spirit-sealed, and glory-bound. Amen? Amen. So we're secure in his presence, and we're sealed with his promise. We quoted Ephesians chapter 1, which said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance. 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in us will what? Perfect it, complete it, make it whole, bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His faithfulness still endures so we don't have to fear. He will protect us. The Holy Spirit is our hope. He is our seal. He is our anchor. He is our smoke detector. Along comes with this glorious benefits of that promise that he will never leave us comes the flip side of that promise. He will never stop beeping when he senses danger. Right? Never stop. The batteries can never be taken out. Not really. We can only attempt to block our ears and ignore the sound of the beeping. I have a life. You have a life. We have a soul. Hear any beeping sounds in there? His faithfulness endures. So we don't have to fear. But here's the second point. His frustration still builds. So we shouldn't be foolish. The fact that he is faithful doesn't mean that we can fool around with his grace and cheapen it by living old, any old way that we please, right? We can sin against him. And I began talking about that last week. We can do it in a number of different ways according to the scriptures. And when we do, guess what starts happening? Beeping noises. Beeping noises. Annoying, loud, beeping noises. It's not loud enough. But sometimes the beeping isn't loud enough. It's loud enough for you to hear, but not everybody else. Beeping can sound like this. A parent neglects his children. They complain, misbehave, or increase the level of conflict around the house and the parent has a nagging sense of failure inside. But instead of looking closely at their parenting, instead of talking directly about it with his children, he buries himself more fully in his work or his hobbies or television. A woman feels a twinge of pain when she sees a documentary about famine in Africa. She vaguely wonders about how little money she gives, but she doesn't like the discomfort, so she distracts herself by going shopping. An angry man blows up at those closest to him. His beeping sound is his loneliness. He takes the batteries out of the smoke detector by drinking a little more, convincing himself and his relatives that they're all difficult people. It's not him. It's everybody else. And the spirit is grieved. The spirit can be grieved. That's the first way we can sin against him. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, we looked at that briefly last week. The scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Holy Spirit, as I suggested last week, is to wound him personally and deeply. It's to break his heart. How do we grieve or wound the Holy Spirit? Whatever violates God's will does it. Last week we looked at the context of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, and we read through it. 
Let me summarize what kinds of things are in that text that grieve the Holy Spirit. Unwholesome talk, number one. Unholy attitudes, number two. And unchristian behavior, number three. We bring him sorrow when we inwardly rationalize that we know we shouldn't be doing something, but we determine we're going to do it anyway because we're forgiven. And that cuts his heart open. And he starts beeping. Beeping, beeping, beeping. And you know how through feelings of guilt inside. And the danger is that if you don't repent of it and quickly get it back on track, you know what? You, can't, you, you would not just end up grieving him, but you might begin to start resisting him. To actively kick against the Holy Spirit. And that's the second way that he we can sin against him. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. He can be resisted. Look at what this says. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your father did. This is Stephen talking to the, the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin. And that statement, among others that he said, got him in big trouble. How big a trouble? He ended up dead. One of the first martyrs. He charged them with resisting actively the Holy Spirit. Resisting the Spirit is one more step away from the Holy Spirit's outstretched hand. One step away, one more step away from the flame that's burning and hopefully drawing us toward Him. God is constantly working on, in our lives through the Holy Spirit to bring us into a perfect relationship with Him. He reaches out to us through people, through events, through circumstances, consistently revealing himself to us so that we might respond to him. Don't ever stop responding because once you do, well, you don't want to go there. Think about the hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount. Think of the, think of the lyrics toward the end of that song, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The man who wrote that hymn ended poorly. A drunk. Wishing that he could have those feelings that he had when he wrote that hymn. He can be grieved. He can be resisted. And then it can dissolve into being lied to. He can be lied to. Look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 5. Just go back a couple of chapters. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Let's begin in, chapter, in verse 1 with the context. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Note this, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And even after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Ananias and Sapphira learned the hard way that you cannot deceive nor can you hide anything from God who sees all, knows all, and judges all. You can lie to men. You can lie to women. You can lie to the people around you and to the church. But ultimately, you know what you're doing? You're lying to the Holy Spirit who is God. That's what Peter said. And in that particular case, they were judged immediately on the spot. He can also be quenched, the Holy Spirit can. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in verse 19, we have this very short staccato verse of Scripture that says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Spiritual things can become less and less important to a person who is continually grieving and resisting the Spirit. Instead of fanning the flame of the Spirit within them or around them, they continually, continually pour water on the Spirit. Ever seen that happen? Ever seen that happen, really? Individuals do it and whole churches engage in it. When ministry that the Spirit is directing us to is stifled, the Spirit is quenched. The NIV translate, translates this in picturesque form. If you have an NIV, you'll see that it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. That really gives a better sense of it. That's really it in a nutshell. Quenching the Spirit is like pouring a bucket of water, cold water, on a fire that's burning and providing benefit to everyone that's around. Whether it's burning in you or in others around you, Paul says, don't put it out. Don't quench it. Now here's where the metaphor of the smoke alarm changes a bit. In this case, the alarm is alerting us to something good. There's a good fire burning. Don't put it out. That means don't try and stop what the Spirit is doing in your life or in your church's life. Look at Paul's context here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. From verses 12 down to 22, it talks about things like appreciating those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you and give you instruction, live in peace with one another, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, and do not quench the Spirit. If these things in this context are not being followed, the Spirit's fire will be doused. Now that doesn't mean that we should allow everything that's done in the name of the Spirit to go on unchecked. 
We must test and examine everything carefully according to the light of Scripture, holding on to what is good and rejecting what is not good. Look at the following verses. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and is operating in many churches and in many different people, all of which may approach ministry from a different and unique angle. That's God's doing. That's God's doing. As I learned years ago, the one great claim of Christianity is that it can produce people who dare to be different. Dare to be different. If this flame of diversity is snuffed out, what kind of exciting message do we have for the world? Tell me. Another thing to note, as J.I. Packer points out, is that while one may effectively put out the fire by dousing it, one cannot make it burn again simply by stopping pouring water. It has to be lighted afresh. Similarly, when the Spirit has been quenched, it is beyond our power to undo the damage we have done. We can only cry to God in penitence, asking that He will revive His work. Don't quench the Spirit, Paul says. If the Spirit is grieved and resisted to the point of quenching Him, and you persist in this practice, you may find, as the Jews did in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees in Jesus' day found that you're not a child of God at all. In fact, you may be nearing the perilous point of no return. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63 verses 9 and 10. Isaiah is recalling the mercies that God had poured out on his people up to this point. And in verse 9, he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Meaning God was afflicted with it. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Now, that's a scary place to be. Think about that. Notice the pattern here. They rebelled. He, meaning God, grieved. He turned against them, and he actually fought against them. That's really scary. Now, the New Testament asks the, questions and asks the question in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who is against us? What's the answer? No one, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? The implied answer is no one. That's a great promise of security for the believer. But the opposite is true as well, according to this verse. If God is against us, who can be for us? What's the answer? No one. No one at all. Now listen to these verses found in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It says, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who healed, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 
Amos chapter 9, verse 4 says, And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. That can happen. It can happen. God's grace is available. But there comes a point in time when people grieve and resist and quench and lie to the Spirit enough where eventually God may say, have it your way. See, because judgment happens at the center of idolatry. Here is the point in which I believe a person or a church or a people is exposed as apostate. In other words, they have a form of godliness but no power. They may speak the words, but no faith. They're not really given to Jesus Christ. This is the point where total rejection of the Holy Spirit's truth about Christ has been reached. These people don't lose their salvation. They actually never had it to begin with. Or should I say, it never really had them. And now that they have reached a state of what someone has called determined unbelief, this state in which the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is rejected flatly out of hand, the writer of Hebrews says that at that point the Spirit is insulted. Insulted. So, another way we can sin against the Holy Spirit? He can be insulted. Now, I, I should give a disclaimer here. As I'm going through these sins, there are kind of a couple of different categories. There are some sins here that a believer can commit, but there are other sins that only an unbeliever can commit. And I believe this is one of them. You can be insulted. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, get the picture here? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a Living God, you think? You think? He can be insulted. Literally, it means he's treated with utter contempt and outrage. Here is the contemptuous sin of determined and definitive unbelief. People who get to this point have grieved, resisted, quenched the spirit to the point that they reject every and opportunity, every and any opportunity that they have to come to Christ. There is nothing left for them but for judgment. It's similar to the sin that Jesus referred to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit which has often been also referred to as the unpardonable sin. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 for a moment. I want to show you something here. It's also in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 32, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, 
Jesus is ministering. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He's casting out demons. And in verse 22 of Mark chapter 3, we read this. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and he began speaking to them in parables. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You think this is a little scary right here? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now that particular sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, in this context, seems to be the unique sin of being a first-hand witness to the miraculous work of Christ and calling it satanic. It was tantamount to saying that Jesus was demon-possessed and performed miracles by Satan himself. That's what the context suggests. That is why some people believe that this sin could only be committed when Jesus walked the earth. It cannot be committed today, according to some people. I happen to believe that. Having said that, let me say this. I do believe that there is a sin that leads to ultimate eternal death in the scriptures that would be considered unpardonable today. It's the sin of totally refusing and continually rejecting the Spirit's offer and direction toward the only means of salvation possible, which is through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. If a person dies in the state of flat-out rejection of the gospel, there remains no forgiveness for that. Now, there's a point on the Niagara River as you approach the falls that is considered the point of no return. People have been swept over the falls when they've gotten to that place. Similarly, there is a point in which a person becomes so hardened to the promptings of the Spirit and has so totally turned his back on God's revelation that God will literally turn his back on them and allow them in their unbelief to take their own course. You can read that in Romans chapter 1. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic engaged in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. And six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets. But while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. You know what that means, right? You're out over the ocean where there's nothing in sight but the lights from this carrier and they ordered a blackout so now the pilots could not see it anymore. 
Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land, and they made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in. But because the entire carrier with its several thousand men, as well as all the other planes and equipment, would have been put in jeopardy, no lights were permitted to be turned on. And when the six planes finally ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing water and all the crew members perished into eternity. Now that story, that true story, makes a sober point spiritually. There comes a point in time when God turns out the lights. When for all intents and purposes, further opportunity for salvation can be lost to those who continually reject and reject and reject and reject the truth. Now remember, this point doesn't come overnight. It is the result of a gradual process of going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, one step at a time. Again, that is exactly what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31 is pointing out. And those who follow Christ would not commit this sin. They could not commit this sin. Now, don't confuse these sins against the Holy Spirit with the personal sins that we are actually struggling to overcome. Because the struggle, if you're struggling with trying to overcome a sin, a personal sin, the struggle itself indicates that you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you're responding to Him. The struggle there is not necessarily with the Spirit, but with the sin itself. Read Romans 7. Paul talks about this. It's the refusal to let the Spirit have His way with us that will ultimately destroy us if we continue in that until we die. There may be another way to sin against the Spirit implied by the Scriptures as well. One last thing. We can sin against Him by defiling the temple of God. It's implied in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians, two passages here, chapter 6 and chapter 3, where it calls the body the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You can sin against the Holy Spirit by sinning against your body, because if you're a believer, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. What are we talking about here? In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, it's a corporate thing. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that you there is plural. He's talking about the body of Christ, the church. 
Don't you know, church, that you as a collective whole are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And then he gives this charge. If anyone destroys the church of God, God will destroy him. As believers, however, we're convinced of better things, Paul says in Hebrews. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually and corporately, and we don't want to fool around with his grace, do we? If there's something in your life that's grieving him right now, I want you to deal with it. The scriptures want you to deal with it. God wants you to deal with it. Don't let it spiral out of control. And if you're not a believer, the same holds true. Don't get to that point where God says, have your own way. I'm taking my hands off. Because you, before you reach the point of no return, listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The Holy Spirit says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart. If the beeping sound is going off, don't try to turn it off. Try, rather, to let him figure out where the fire is, where the smoke is indicating danger, because the Spirit's frustration still builds. So we dare not be foolish. But now there's much more positive note to talk about. And unfortunately, I don't have time left today to go into all the points in the positive side. But I'll give you what the, what the positive side is, and next week we'll pick it up in detail. His freedom, the Spirit's freedom, still rings, so we shouldn't forget it. We shouldn't forget it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, the demand for absolute liberty brings men to the depths of slavery. That's how we end up addicted to sin. We cry for freedom, but we don't really understand what freedom is. Freedom. Freedom has only one prescription, folks. One prescription. And Jesus gave it. If therefore the Son shall make you free... You shall be free indeed. Amen? Jesus is the way to absolute freedom. And he has given us, by grace, his Holy Spirit to make it possible to live in it. And that's what we're really going to dive into next week. What an incredible gift this gift of the Spirit is. Freely offered, freely received. How will you respond to it? How will you respond to it? Let me close with this little story because it's apropos. We've got a lot of graduations that just occurred, maybe a couple still to come. But this author writes, this year we had a daughter graduate from Azusa Pacific University. 
And his wife, a, a prolific writer as well, spoke at the commencement. So we gathered with a group of 50 or so faculty, alumni, and administration before the ceremony. A few dozen people had, gradually, had graduated 50 years earlier, and they were there also to celebrate with their freshly minted co-alums, he says. At one point, John Wallace, the university president, pulled three seniors into the center of the room and told us all they were going to be serving under-resourced people in impoverished areas for several years after graduation. They get their degree, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to go to another country and serve impoverished, under-resourced people. The graduating seniors said a few words about where they were going and why. We all applauded, and they thought that that was why they were there. And then John, the university president, turned his back to the rest of us, faced the three students, and told them the real reason that they were in the room. This is what he said. Somebody you do not know has heard what you're doing. He wants you to be able to serve the people where you are going without any impediment. So he has given a gift. He is asked to remain anonymous, but here is what he has done for you. John turned to the first student and looked at her in the eye and said, quote, You have been forgiven your school debt of $105,000. took a few moments for the words to sink in. The student shook her head at first, and the thought registered, and she began to cry at the sheer unexpected generosity of a mountain of debt wiped out in the moment by someone she had never met. John turned to the next student. He said, quote, you have been forgiven your debt of $70,000. John turned to the third student, and by this time she knew what was coming, but it was as if she could not believe it was happening until she heard the words, quote, you have been forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students were trembling. Trembling. Their lives had been changed in a twinkling by the extravagance of someone they had never met. All of us who watched were so moved, it was as if we had experienced the forgiveness ourselves. There was not a dry eye in the room. He says, I wanted so badly to say, I have a daughter who's graduating this weekend. <laughs> Think about it. An unpayable debt. An unseen giver. An unforgettable gift. And the freedom of the debtors becomes a blessing to the world. That's grace. That's the joy of forgiveness. There is a bigger debt that we labor under. And we give it labels like regret and guilt and shame and brokenness. But the real label is sin. But God was in Christ, the scripture says, reconciling the world to himself. And we know what's coming. Yet we still need to hear the words just the same. You have been forgiven your debt. You've been forgiven your debt.
forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. And that's what screams loudest about the communion table that we're about to partake in. Forgiven. Do you want it? You want to be free? Then give your heart to Jesus Christ. And you will be free. Let's pray as we get ready for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words that are arresting in the scripture about how we can sin against the Holy Spirit. They're not pretty words. They're difficult to hear and even more difficult to endure. But thanks be to God for his incredible, irrevocable gift of the Holy Spirit who alerts us to these things. And thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, for his forgiveness that he rendered to us on the cross and how you have accepted that sacrifice by raising him from the dead and how we who in faith embrace him receive that in our own souls. God in heaven, I pray that if there be any person in this room today that has never accepted the gift, that they would in the quietness of their own heart right now pray and ask sincerely, Lord, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. I love you. Be my Lord. And may I walk in the spirit that you will bestow upon me. I ask it for the sake of the kingdom and in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.